Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Scaffold is supported in part by the Architecture Foundation. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the architect David Leach, who founded his eponymous practice in 2016. David and I met back in January at his office in Hackney Downs, where we talked about, among other things, his view of his education as an apprenticeship gained through practice, and his research into a means of designing that he describes as richly economical, embracing affordable construction and materials, and finding a richness instead through the nuances of design and assembly. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Um, So I thought we could start by kind of going through the list of places you've worked in the past. I just kind of want to read them out because... um, to me, it seems like there's an inevitability in having started up on your own. Uh, but I don't know if you actually agree with that. So you started at Grafton Architects in 2003, Tom Depore from 2004 to 2007. Yeah. Uh, 6A Architects uh, in 2007, Caruso Sinjin from 2008 to 2013, and then Herzog and Demeron from uh, 2013 to 2015. And then you were teaching before you started your own practice. But that list of names is like pretty formidable. And uh, from the outside, it kind of seems like you'd always designed to set up on your own. But is that is that the case? I don't know, actually. Uh, I think I always imagined, yes, doing my own work. Uh, to be honest, though, the practice I work in, that was my education. I was never that engaged in university. And it was only when I started practice and I started kind of having that hands-on experience and having the conversations in the office, having the conversations about making, trying to understand spaces, uh, trying to understand how spaces can affect you that I really kind of, it lit up for me. Mm. And for me, my education was an apprenticeship. Mm. In all the practices I've worked in, I've worked in, I think, five practices in the 13 years since I left university, but they were all at different stages of their career, from like uh, Hearst or the Mirren, I guess you imagine in their late stages, to some who were mid and then some who were just starting up. And I've been really lucky that I've got to work for like so many of my kind of architectural heroes that I had before I was in university. And that was good because it, it made me see that, you know, architecture is available to everybody. Mm. Maybe that leads us to this question of like how, as you established your own practice, you started to define its own voice uh, or its own agenda. I imagine that it emerged kind of naturally over time. It was probably 
crystallizing during your experience in these other offices. But at the same time, through my own experience, I know that these things aren't really real until you're asked to kind of speak for yourself and literally like to get up in front of an audience and present your work, which you've been doing more lately. I just wonder if you could um, talk me through that process of uh, articulating your agenda and what it means to, to have to do that um, at the outset of the establishment of your practice. Yeah, well, to be honest, I don't know what my agenda is yet. Uh, it's the ideas and teams that I'm currently exploring are really coincidental to the projects that have just come into the office. And uh, I guess in some ways, because of the variety of practices I've worked in, I feel almost like a, a mongrel or some sort of... Uh, and I think that's good, actually, like, you know, to be made up of kind of different ideas or different thoughts. And some of them are conflicting, some of them are, are green. And then as the projects have come to the office, uh, all we can do is test these ideas and some of them stick and some of them don't stick. Uh, the, the first project we had in the office was for a house in Clontarf, which was originally designed in 2007. So that was 10 years before we actually started to look at uh, making the tender drawings for it. And in that time, going back to that project after 10 years, I was felt like almost a different architect. And I felt like when I went back to that project that it was like a, a refurbishment of a project that was never built mm. because I had the scheme that had got planning permission and we knew roughly what it was going to be, but it didn't feel right to me. It didn't feel like where I was or what I was interested in at the time. And I, I think we're probably always developing and we're always changing, and, you know, a lot of the teams that are looking at in the office are due to, well, I guess I should say, like, before I set up my own practice, I was, I was in uh, offices that were quite well established. And you can't forget that privilege of these sophisticated clients, uh, incredible budgets and very interesting briefs. But I, I thought it was going to be very difficult to make architecture for my mum's friend who wants a, a kitchen extension. But actually it was really refreshing because actually I realised that architecture is, it can be in anything. And you, you don't need to have this, uh, uh, this incredibly complicated brief or interesting ideas or contract in sight. It's about your ambition and your, uh, and your attentiveness, I think, and, and, and what you want to make out of a project. And I think architecture can be in everything. Every project in the office is a project, if that makes sense, uh, in terms of like, I won't take on a project just because I want to get a fee in. No matter what we do, if, whether it's a small piece of furniture to a house, they all get the same amount of, of attention and that's quite a lot of attention. Uh -huh. I think to me, that's one of the keys maybe to thinking about the work to date, I guess. I mean, there are two houses that you've finished. One is a small house and one is an extension. Yeah. Um, and yet, um, despite the scale, there are so many ideas crammed into the projects. And there's such a high degree of detail that it really seems to be like, it's the attention that becomes the, the kind of, that's where the value is. Yeah. You kind of try and find the value in, in um, I'm gonna, I want to say craft, but it's almost like arrangement. Or yeah. composition? It, it, for me, it should be the opposite to craft because my projects that I've worked on so far, we're finishing our third project at the moment. Uh, we don't have the budget for craft. 
uh, yeah, so it, it, it's arranged, but it's assembly. Uh, I got uh, an Arts Council grant to research this idea, I think, of called the Richly Economic. And that's based on that historically, if you want to build uh, inexpensively, you build quickly and you cover up. Uh, and how do you cover up? We cover up with elaboration. Elaboration can be skirtings, it can be dados, it can be paint, it can be render. And I think that there was maybe a time in architecture when there was this idea that to build inexpensively, you strip back. And for me, that was like this kind of fake austerity chic where you kind of see these uh, very kind of plain materials, plywood boards, uh, concrete blocks, but laid immaculately. And I remember when we were doing the, the conservatory room project in Dublin, we had these uh, drawings, I think they're on the wall there, but they're, uh, that showed the, the layout of the block work and in, in three dimensions and perspective draw, type of drawing. And we were intrigued by the patterning we were getting by laying the block in different from soldier course to block on flat. And uh, the client was really keen that maybe we should take that forward. But I was like, but we can't afford to do that. If we do that, uh, we're going to need a, a skilled labourer. Uh, we're going to need a skilled craftsman to lay these blocks. The cheapest way to build is let something go get up quick and then cover over it and, and sheet it. And uh, so that's really just come about because we didn't have budgets for these projects. Uh, everything that we could buy off the shelf for the conservatory room, we did. So the uh, roof lights are V-Lux. The double glazed units are just from diamond windows. So everything is... Uh, standardized which gave us certain heights and then everything that needed to be assembled we decided that we would assemble it in a way where we put that's where we put our design effort into so rather than a wall just being a a, a stretcher bond blockwork wall it became articulated similarly with the joists so these were the more limits you can have to the project the more constraints you can have to the project really the better the project is. I, I, I really believe architecture is just time. Like the more you can put into time into it, the better it'll, it'll get. Mm. And there becomes a point where your time is actually editing. So it's actually, okay, we've done a certain amount of work. We look at it and we can go, oh, we've gone too far. Because I'm really aware that like being a, a new practice, not having m many projects, you can have too many ideas in a project. And actually editing is more of a skill. There are a few things that you mentioned I want to kind of delve into a little more. One is this idea of the richly economical. And there's a question, first of all, of like what the Arts Council project was. I think people listening um, would be curious to understand like how funding um, from such bodies as the Arts Council could help support independent research. So I want to talk about that. But then I also want to talk about um, I guess this idea of what we're kind of identifying is that, you know, labor is expensive, materials are expensive. Um, so we're going to kind of step away from those elements uh, of the architecture and then focus on our time as designers in um, okay. composing and arranging. Yeah. And in a way, it almost feels like the architect takes a hit. I mean, we're elevating the status of, of, of what's, what the architect does. And uh, we're saying that the value really is in the designer's attention. But um, when you're saying like, you know, things get better with time, uh, we all know like architects sacrifice so much time to begin with. I just wonder, um, how do you convince a client that um, that's really worth their investment over um, higher spec materials or 
over meticulously constructed spaces. The architects that are the clients that do realize or do kind of, I guess, I work with, I've been very lucky that it takes a bit of time for that trust to build up. But basically what, what I'm saying is that the way you describe it is correct. It's like, if we can't get the craft done in the, uh, in the skill or access to that skilled craftsmanship on site, if we as architects then have that idea of assembly, which is in design coordination, which is in making tender packages and with making construction drawings, like if we have everything designed and coordinated, we've made the models so we have no, uh, there's no surprises on site, we kind of know what we're getting. It means that when they go to site, they have a fixed figure for the sum. And on all three quest projects I've worked on so far, we haven't had an exp uh, a request for further information yet. So there's no changes on site, which means the price is, is fixed and it can stay fixed. And it means that if they put the energy and the expense into the design coordination, they'll get a cheaper building on site. To build cheaply, it takes a lot of effort and time to understand what materials, how we're going to make that so it becomes interesting. So you need, need to invest in design time. And I think this is what I think it's difficult because uh, for clients to see this all the time, because until they get the final product, it's a, we, we're in the service industry, aren't we? We, we? we speak and we come give ideas, but they don't see the, they don't see the monetary gain or they don't see the aesthetic gain until it's, it's finished. So it's kind of, I, it usually takes a few stages and they see the work we do in like pre-planning and planning and they start to understand the trust and they kind of start to trust us more. But then I think the clients kind of realize, well, if we do put the energy in and I guess it's a leap of faith in me saying that if we do put that in and we do put a lot of time into doing this coordination, well then when we get to site and when we get to uh, construction, we have a much more robust project on, uh, that's happening. Mm. Okay, so can you tell me a little more about the the Arts Council research? Yeah, so I should say first it's the Arts Council of Ireland. Okay. So, uh, and that was basically based, again, it's, it's, it's quite coincidental, but it's from the projects we had in, in the office. And I was, I was, the projects I was getting in the, in the office originally were uh, in the first stage it was just family and friends and they were very in some ways you could say they're very ordinary projects and there's an idea that like they didn't have to be architecture here or maybe you could do them in a way which would be a builder could, could construct them for instance the conservatory room they were just going to buy a, a proprietary conservatory from a, a local B&Q one of these things you attach onto the house and uh, I was interested in the Arts Council researches that to try to make architecture not seem like it's a it's a, a necessary a luxury anymore. That can be something just for the everyday. That's something for the suburbs. It 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 it's it's something that I guess it can be more, even goes back to your question about how to convince clients that you know to go with this as architecture uh, or, or what I'm interested in this attention and and uh, this assembly, but it it can goes the idea that if we are able to take on some of the roles that historically would have gone on site to the people making, if the architecture can take that role back into the design studio, so you're using programs like to study junctions 
at, in detail at, at one-to-one before it's built. We, we can do amazing things. We can replicate the, the closeness to being on site in, in a studio now very, very well. And if we take that on board to, to the, to the, uh, into the studio, it means that we can then start to engage with people like developers who don't want to have that risk on site, who don't want to have that problem of the unknown. And if we can kind of, because what I really want to take forward with the research is to take this idea of the richly economical and take it into volume house building that like, uh, that like we can build houses in the suburbs like at the moment you have volume house building that's being built and it's either uh, low quality, uh, very generic, very quick, and they can make a profit from that, or it's architecturally designed, but then it's also branded like that. And that's I find really frustrating. And suddenly you have a house that might be uh, 100 square meters, its value goes up two or three times because it's been designed by an architect and it makes that, that architectural design things have a, almost a, a luxury quality. It's like a wine. How much is a wine worth? It's well, it's really worth how much someone's willing to pay for it. Uh, and it's the same, and I feel in architecture that I find that quite difficult. That like you know that we can't just walk. Uh, in, especially in, in Ireland, the UK, there's this kind of real disparity between uh, the world of architecture with a kind of I guess a capital A, and then the world of everyday. And I think that we can actually be much more closer because when I go to design. I get much more inspiration from looking at the world of the everyday and seeing how what's working. Like when we went to the house in Clontarf in Dublin, I was much more interested in the neighbouring houses than I was in in, in in a fashion and journals or architecture books at the time. And mm. that is, uh, I think, important because uh, that's something that that's how you progress and you develop. I think and how architecture should develop. Mm. There's something really fascinating about trying to find certainty through a process of modeling in order to kind of justify uh, a design expense by like mitigating risk on site, I guess is the, that's kind of what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, there, there's more to it. Uh, like, I guess we, we try to build uh, in a lot of tolerance. So read, build cheaply is to build a lot of tolerance. So, uh, so that if things are made on site, if there's mistakes happen on site, you can cover them over quickly. Or it, it can, like in the conservatory room, the reason why the ceiling is covered is a distraction to kind of hide from quite crudely put together timbers. Uh, you don't see that because your, your eye is drawn to uh, a polychromy. Um, Maybe that's a tangent to follow next then. This uh, interest in surfaces and the, the kind of, um, the care you've taken uh, to essentially uh, cover over the more roughshod c construction that um, underlies a lot of these two projects that you've finished. And what I'm thinking of now is uh, are two images. One is um, a picture of a wall that had been graffitied and then painted over and then graffitied again and covered up again that you'd photographed and uh, had presented in a lecture. Um, I think this was at London Met. Mm -hmm. um, and then another is a Rothko painting. Um, and from, from far away, it looks black. It's just a big black square. And then closer up, you notice that there are different tones overlaying that black. And there's a kind of deep kind of emerald green. 
But, and these two examples, there's an excitement around uh, the surface of things and their communicative value. And in fact, like how deep really the surface can be, um, which kind of, it kind of saves us from um, the anxiety of, of look, finding integrity in the structure of things. Instead, we're looking for integrity uh, that is both skin deep, but perceptually yeah. much deeper. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, it's it's interesting. You, you those two examples relate to surface because for me, there's an interest in, in layering in, in those. So again, onto but it's also uh, Giuseppe Pannone in this book. He talks about the inner life of forms. And just for people who are listening, this is an artist who takes giant blocks of wood and cuts into them to to recover uh, the tree trunk. I guess the title is what I was interested in, maybe more so in the artwork, the inner life of, of, of forms. So that what I'm interested in is that there is a representational quality to the surface. That's what we see. And really what goes behind that and we can't see and it's intangible, really it just needs to be efficient or economic or it just needs to do what is necessary. What I, what I, why I had that image of the graffiti wall on the on the uh, in the lecture and I guess the same with the Rocco is because I guess I was interested in the idea of this iterative approach which might be slightly different than just surface and, and working with surface but I am definitely interested in maybe a dichotomy of, of surface or how things may change or how things might for instance in the conservatory room project I'm interested in that it's a wall, which is a plane, but it also reads as a trebated structure because it has these pilasters and the stato, which is, and it reads as a trebated structure because it might be an illusion of a conservatory, and the conservatory is made from filigree uh, pieces. But the cheapest way to build that, we couldn't afford filigree stick and post construction. It's the cheapest way is building in block work that local uh, handyman can put up. Uh, now with, the, with that, that graffitied wall, what I'm interested in, was that uh, it's the idea of layering and how we work in the office is that we don't really, I used to get this question in universities to drive me crazy, which is like, what's your idea or what's the big idea? And I still don't have big ideas. Like I don't, and if I do, I do everything to undermine that idea. I, I, if, I, I do not want a project to be read in one sentence or to be understood in one sentence. That for me is just banal and uninteresting. And so by the idea of the graffiti was that there is this brick wall and a graffiti artist came and he drew over it and then the council came and that in that brick wall, they picked a tone. And that tone was a decision by the council, but it was something that was taken from the brick wall that was there. And when they went over the graffiti, they went over it in the module of the bricks. So you had the trace of the graffiti, but now in the module of the bricks with a tone from the brick wall. And then they came, they graffitied it again. The council came and they got uh, another, they picked another color of brick this time for some reason. But they, again, they went over it. So you're left with this. It's like that uh, Idris Khan image, I think, in the lecture as well, where it's the, all those burnt and Hiller Besser photographs, one on top of the other. For me, what's not important is that you don't read the individual, but it's the, it's the image at the end. And I really like that wall that I used to pass beside a job of mine. I, I, 
I, I really like it, but in some ways it's, it's chance, it's, it's, it's uh, luck that it became because it's a lot of different people reacting to what went on before. And when we work up projects at the office, and I think this is why time is important again for how I work, is because we'll do something, but then we'll do something else as another layer that will react to that, that might either go with that or might obliterate the idea that goes before. But we're always building up in, in, in small incremental, it's almost like iterative pieces, rather than saying, this is what we want it to be. And it's, it's kind of chance where we end up. And maybe that's why this idea of editing is very important because we have to know when it's cooked, we have to know when it's to stop. And uh, yeah, that can be difficult. That can, that's, that's probably the most difficult part is knowing when to, to peel it back. Uh, same with the Rocco, why I like, why I like about these ideas of, of working by uh, layers, that, that Rocco painting when you see it from a distance, it, it looks like a, a monochrome picture. It looks like a solid block of paint. Uh, and it works at that scale, at the distance scale. So you're, you're judging it and you're judging that painting in relation to the floor, the wall, the artwork beside it. But then when you get up closer, the, uh, you, you see that's not a, a solid block of color, but actually that there's, there's, actually, there's actually a, a square of green in the black. And the, the amount of depth to that painting, because it's, he built that up almost like a watercolor. He builds it almost to a watercolor, so it becomes up until it becomes almost opaque. But there's still traces of uh, the process in it. And, in the Clontarf house, for instance, in the living room walls, we have this very bold pattern. We've painted on the wall, but it's painted with uh, acrylic varnish. So it's only when you turn on the lights or when the light catches a certain way that you suddenly see you have these uh, one meter high rhomboids around the whole wall. And I, and I like that, that something can be both visible and bold, but also invisible and uh, disappear. And I guess I like it because it goes back to not wanting the project to be read in, in one go or not wanting something to reveal itself too fast. And it's, it's the idea of an architecture that uh, we can all relate to architecture because uh, architecture is, is about how something makes us feel, I think. But we all feel kind of different things. So for instance, you might get an interest out of a light coming into a space. I might be more interested in the color or the polychromy and someone else might be more interested in something else. But I think it's really interesting to think about architecture in terms of uh, the user, the visitor, and the passerby, because they all will, uh, will interact with a building differently, and they all have equal right to that building, because it's all in their experience. Mm. And so I guess you could say the, the passerby is how your building reflects itself into the city. Uh, the user is about the, the experiential quality of it. And, and then the visitor, I guess, is the one where you can have a bit more playful quality with it. It might be the thing where you have the little jokes or not or whatever's mm. interesting. But mm. yeah, I like that. Um, just thinking back to when I was in architecture school, um, the diagram reigned supreme. Oh, yeah. And yeah. if you're building, if your proposal couldn't boil down into a diagram, then it had somehow failed on some level. But then uh, encountering architecture from elsewhere and especially from the UK ambiguity seemed to be the big idea all of a sudden and discovering architects like Jonathan Wolf or Tony Fretton the big the kind of central theme seemed to be uh, 
subtlety and ambiguity. But then, and this kind of maybe is, forms a foundation potentially of your interest in, we're not going to say ambiguity, but I guess the, the how, what will we call it? The kind of complexity of experience and honoring that by um, acknowledging um, meaning is revealed very slowly. Mm. Uh, impressions change and uh, as we encounter and re-encounter a space uh, the, the depth of meaning uh, only grows yeah and that's kind of a mouthful <laughs> like that's kind of a that's kind of a hard pitch in a way <laughs> yeah but I, I guess I wouldn't like to say that I'm just interested and I think Ambiguity is difficult because I guess it picks up on Venturians, but I'm more interested in how maybe something could be both diagrammatic and also uh, experiential. So it, the ambigu ambiguity isn't in just that we're talking about uh, the subtlety of experience of space, but we're talking about how a building can work on different scales, so the building can work and have different representations and different meanings at different scales. But I, I like that uh, things are undermined or your expectations are, are, are undermined or changed because I, I think that's how we live in cities anyhow because we're they're all done by different authors so maybe if your buildings can be a little bit schizophrenic as well I think that can make it feel richer and I think uh, yeah like I guess why difficulty in university often as well is this, there was this idea of this soft modernism was so prevalent and it came from I used to get a question about the diagram the whole time as well and, and it was this idea that something should be readable and I just never understood why something should be re why a building should be readable or this building is about this we don't like we don't judge anything else like that I don't think we don't it's much more if it, it, uh, people are much more complex I think buildings are much more complex and I think the the more layers and the more uh, levels that something is on something I guess Robert Venturi called it uh, non-straightforward architecture mm. and I guess that's like I remember reading Complexity and Contradiction recently maybe a few years ago and like all the ideas that I have been thinking about were written more elegantly and better there already. So it's nothing new. But uh -huh. it, it's, 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 uh, I think it's probably architecture that everybody can enjoy. Mm. I think it's an architecture that, you know, my mum can enjoy it as much as maybe uh, a student looking at it in the university or something. I think it's a, I'd like that. Oh no, that would be my, uh, my goal or that would be my wish I think mm. uh, and I think that American or North American architecture really has that like I really enjoy architects like William Turnbull who, who only did houses uh, uh, Frank Gehry all these are there's a there's a credible optimism and I'd, I'd like my architecture to be optimistic like that too
What made me decide to come and talk to you were just a few images, and one was of this house you've been talking about with its gable end kind of merging with the wall of a lane. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like a finely rendered wall. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a few impressions in the wall that mark out where apparently openings had been or could have been. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a downpipe that's, that's following a seemingly arbitrary line across this blank facade. And the downpipe is made of copper. Um, and then there is a, what looks like slight, but what I've since learned is um, like concrete aggregate mm. shingled roof. Oh, it's uh, fibrous cement. Fibrous cement. Tiles. Tiles yeah. on the roof. And each tile has a copper pin holding it in place, which makes a kind of subtle pattern. Um, and then there's a giant, what appears to be a chimney, and what you learn later on is in fact a skylight and uh, ventilation extract, um, amongst other things. And that one image alone is so striking and it's so bizarre. Um, and to me, it's all about the kind of strangeness of this surface, like this one wall uh, is what drew me in. And um, so hearing you talk more now about your interest in surfaces and the way that uh, you can use color and um, this kind of very th maybe thin, thin applications to kind of cover up um, parts of a building or draw attention away from some parts and towards other. That makes me think that as an architect, what you're really dealing with is um, to a certain extent, like how people see things or how they, how they pay attention to things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess maybe further more to the subject of surfaces, like culture is so much about surface now. Everything is so mediated. This is not new. These insights, it's kind of tried to say, but like we live in images and I feel like especially now, uh, architects like you are kind of building images or you're, you're concerned with the thinnest layer of a building and its expressive potential first and foremost. And I find that both perverse and exciting. No, I, I, I agree completely with you. Uh, I, I'm slightly scared by it sometimes because I see it in everything at the moment. Like, you know, I think it's in politics. You know, we, do we care more about how something is expressed or how it makes us feel than actually what it is? Like, you know, it's kind of that post-truth uh, time. For me, when you talk there, I get really excited because, uh, first of all, you have your narrative of what that facade is. Was it the past? How did that come about? But it, it, it starts to set, uh, there's an intrigue in it. And I guess that intrigue is what I'm really interested in. And, and, and I guess the intrigue comes from a wall or a surface often vertical surfaces that have a, a representational quality. And it's not really about trying to make image, but it's trying to make something have a, a meaning to uh, someone or, or have a, a conversation with someone. The reason why that elevation looks that way, there's, there's many different, there are many different reasons why it came together. The downpipe was because I thought the, the facade looked a bit dull and there was a lot of blank space. So almost like 
if you're an artist and you're drawing a line and you're making a painting, you, you make a judgment about what's the balance. And for me, it felt heavy on one side. So this line was a way of kind of just taking it down the other side, make it feel a bit more composed. So I guess there's something painterly about that. Uh, the, the, it only needs to have a small window to the bathroom. That's that oval shaped window is the only window that is necessary on that facade. But that didn't feel right in terms of the proportion of the gable. So we made a relief of a window that did feel right. What I thought felt right, and uh, again, that's making a decision that's not necessarily honest, I guess, but it's making a decision that I feel is appropriate or I feel has a, uh, a quality that I can understand, and I'm hoping that other people can understand. And uh, I never understood the modernist belief that this honesty or this kind of uh, integrity that. Uh, if it looks like brick, it needs to be brick. I, I don't like, you know, there was this thing when they made cathedrals, like God is in the details, God sees everything. So, you know, you can't hide. And if you're, if you're, if you're pretending it's brick, it has to be brick because God will know. This but, is Mises kind of dictate. I just remember that's from school, not, uh -huh. not, not from architecture school, just oh, from, from okay. learning history in school. Uh, uh -huh. But uh, like, you know, like from cathedral building, like, you know, that they, you, you can go to like in the void of the dome, there would be amazing uh, carpentry work there because the carpenters would still believe that, okay, the common person's not going to see it, but God will see it. So they were making incredible jointed details. Mm. Uh, and then uh, Lutyens, there's that uh, Andrew uh, Weaver quote or Anthony Weaver quote where he talks about, it's a Latin were suggesti falsi or suppressi veri, which is like to either you suppress the truth or you suggest the falsehood. And I guess they're kind of both of the same thing, but it's interesting that in law, it's very important, I think, in how they talk. I think that's a, a law phrase that he used when he was talking about Lutyens' work, mm -hmm. but Lutyens was doing this as well. So that kind of makes me think, well, do I really get hung up about it, whether it's a, it's a moment now, actually when a hundred years ago was happening as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, Everything is, has already been done before. So Lutyens was making images back then. Uh, what I think we need to be more wary of now is this uh, problem with imagery uh, and the idea of this architecture being fast, you know, uh, like I, I think with social media and things like that and the advent of internet, like, you know, I really try to work with blinkers on and try to concentrate on, yeah, just what, what I'm trying to do, I think. Mm. One more point I wanted to, to talk about was um, this idea of the applied arts. Oh yeah. Uh, which comes up um, in some of the lectures you've given. Yeah. Um, and well, first of all, what, what are the applied arts? <laughs> my interpretation or my understanding or misremembering of the applied arts is that it's something that's done, not necessarily for it's a functional benefit, but potentially for uh, to convey a meaning or to convey an aesthetic benefit. So I guess maybe an example could be in, in this project in we're finishing up in Walthamstow where we have a, a, a ceiling and it's made from these Metsec joists. And if we're being economic and we're being efficient, we could have probably made it in six Metsec joists to hold up the, uh, the roof. But we did it in 32 because one, they were relatively inexpensive, so 32 of them was affordable. Uh, two, 
they meant that there is this idea we have this dichotomy between something that was both filigree and light but also incredibly dense and deep which i quite liked depending on how you view it it becomes opaque or uh, or opens up when you go underneath it and i like that uh, so for instance i guess you could say that the, the downpipe in clontarf that's an idea of applied art and that is because it's not doing anything functionally better, but for me it's composing or making a better facade. Uh, similarly, the, 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 the crampions, those copper crampions that hold the roof, they're overscaled. It's not giving it any functional benefit, but it's giving it another pattern, which has another layer of interest. Uh, and it goes back to this idea of design coordination. So what we were talking about earlier, when we were saying about the architect at the time, well, the time is really design coordinations in the assembly. And if in the assembly, we're able to assemble things to have a pattern or to have another layer of richness, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it's gonna to have to work. Like for instance, a volume house builder, their houses work, yes? So if we want to do, if we want to engage with the world of the developer and the volume house builder, we have to make our houses work. But at the same time, we want to make them delightful. That's kind of the applied arts, I think. You know, how do you make what a developer is doing, which is just functional or pragmatic? Those houses work, people live in them. People are quite happy to live in them and extend them. They're quite versatile. But how do we make that into something that's more uh, ambitious or, or, or more progressive? Mm. And I think that is how the idea of the applied arts, using design and assembly to enhance quality, where we don't have access to the finer construction or the, uh, the skilled labor or the craftsmen. I really like when minor elements become the, uh, the, 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 the main star or the, the big hit. I'm thinking in particular now of the electrical outlets that uh, in one of your projects functions as a kind of exposed cross stitch yes. to connect to um, wall panels. Yes. Things like that, I'm just looking um, uh, at what appears to be a kind of, and someone else has described it this way too, as like a petrified rug yeah. of marble tiles inset into um, a concrete floor. But the thing with all those, they're no expensive. The only thing additional that you have to a, a standard build is the tour to do that. There's no additional expense. There's no additional expense to say, all, all we said to the, to the, uh, the electrician is, can he put that where the joint between the two panels is? Mm. So there's no additional cost for a developer, or no addition to cost for a client or no addition. The only thing is that as an architect, and that's our, I think our, our duty is to come up with kind of ideas how to make things wonderful. Well, I mean, I mean that's a point we could end on, I think. Um, I don't know, I have another feeling, but I don't know if I'll be able to articulate it. It's like, it somehow feels like, in some way, um, there's an acknowledgement as an architect of what you can't have a hand in controlling anymore. And there's a kind of letting go of um, ownership or responsibility or just control and a focusing of attention on those things that we still have some degree of, of um, ownership of. But those things are increasingly paper thin. And um, part of that makes me feel sad and worried about being an architect. Um, but at the same time, I guess the point we've been kind of uh, orbiting is that, well, the world itself is, 
becoming this thin anyways, or the, uh, there is a kind of growing consensus that the kind of cultural world we move in is only a surface to begin with or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, I guess there's more thinking I have to do <laughs> before I can unpack that further, but I think it's that kind of feeling that, that, uh, that drives me to the work in the first place. And that um, I just don't know yet if I'm supposed to feel helpless or hopeful or <laughs> what the kind well, of... I, I really don't think we should feel frightened of... First of all, I don't know if... I don't know where the role of the architect is going, obviously. Uh, but I don't think we're in a bad position at the moment. And, and I think that as an architect, you can set up what you want architecture to be. Like it, it's, it's up to us to kind of define what our roles are going to be. Uh, we, like, I don't know when you say relinquishing roles, I don't know if you mean about understanding of costs and, and structure and services, but I get a real kick from those meetings with those consultants. Like we work with consultants that, I guess for, first and foremost, love architecture. So we're kind of on a similar page like that, and they want to test things. So we're, we're lucky like that. But I, I guess because I'm, uh, because a lot of the, the ideas, myself or Daniel or whoever in the office, we're, we're talking about amongst ourselves, that like to go out to these consultants and to talk and actually to get knockbacks or kick, get like, no, you can't do that. I find that that's where I'm getting the drivers for the projects because the more limits and the more constraints you can have on a project, really the better it's going to be because it focuses you on what's the ac- what is actually, what is it that kind of you need to do to make this into a, a project. Like, you know, and it might be one, two, three ideas. It might be no ideas, but like it, it's lots of stuff that's getting, so it's kind of almost, I don't know if this is, it's almost like being, this is a bit pretentious maybe, but being a conductor or something like that. You know, you're kind of getting all this stuff uh, thrown at you and it's about how you kind of move it away or push it inside or, and how you, you kind of bring it to come together. I think that point about um, the onus really being on, well, first of all, the understanding that the architect's role is plural. It really is plural. Like I'm having conversations and collaborations with so many people from planners to service engineers to structure. Like, I've never had a project that hasn't gotten better when constraints or limits have been put onto it. Mm. I, I've never gotten to, a, and I think if I do get to a point where I'm doing a project and I'm kind of going, oh, it's the best I could do because of these limits, or then I think I'll walk away from architecture. Mm. Uh, I really, every project I think I've left, I've been happiest at the final moment because of all, maybe the problems, maybe the things I thought, how is this going to work? Mm. But I've always gotten them to work out. And I think I've learned that from practices like from Tom Puerres and Caruso's where, you know, you really, I guess I've also been in a position where I've worked in practices where they're not my scale, they're much more established and they have the resources to be able to do this. So I'm maybe a little bit tainted. I think everybody works like this, mm. uh, but it's the only way I've ever worked and it's the only way I want to work. Mm. So I guess even though I'm a small new practice, I'm setting up the attitude of what I want my practice to be. And uh, 
And I think that's important. I have friends who've set up practices and their ambition is for their office, what size their office is. I don't have any ambition for my office. I have only ambition for the projects. Mm. Uh, my office would be whatever it is to facilitate that the projects we do are as good as we can make them. Mm. Um. Um, there's one more point I'm just remembering about, um, you mentioned before, uh, before we were recording about, um, I guess not knowing in the end, what scale of, of office you would want to run or yeah. what scale of work you'd ideally want to be working on. But there was this point you made about thinking about um, the architect as a kind of session musician. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, this idea that collaboration uh, should be more commonplace between practices yeah. and that... Um, why not for one project could you not make a guest appearance in another office and kind of uh, contribute to the design of, of a building in that way? And but, I wonder, what does that mean in terms of, yeah, the shape that this practice might take? Like, yeah, like the practice really is, it's early days. Like, it's like, uh, I really don't know where it'll be or what will be in, in a year or two. Uh, and I do read, and yeah, how would we make a practice? Like, I do really like the idea of this idea of like, session musicians like Hal Blaine, who in the 60s were playing for like Elvis Presley to like uh, the Ronettes and, you know, and even I guess like if you look at Jim Sterling, when Jim Sterling was with James Gown and Jim Sterling with Michael Wilford, like, you know, and how that affects and changes their dynamic. Like uh, when I first set up the practice, the projects were mainly for family and friends. Uh, and then we got the second kind of year as, uh, old offices and uh, colleagues passing on work. But now in the last year, we've had first time had people come into the office for the work that the office is doing. And it's quite exciting that, like, you know, we're getting, people are coming in saying, oh, we've seen a few of the projects. Uh, we're interested in your ideas. And can we look at it? We're, we're looking at doing a uh, housing development at the moment. That's quite good that the, the scale and these ideas are richly economical we're trying to bring up. But I guess I see those almost as being collaborations as well. So I, I, I do like the idea of collaboration. I do like the idea of being a session museum, moving around and kind of getting a, getting a feel from this person or getting a, an, an idea or a tour from this person and they modify the way you think and you can modify the way you think to, to uh, uh, getting the same rhythm as them. But uh, at the moment, I quite enjoy working on my own because I can make these mistakes, it's only me. Uh, and also the ideas are quite single-minded. Uh, they might be bad, I don't know, we'll see as they come through. But at least they're not getting, they're not getting watered down and we're, we're able to kind of push it now and then we can kind of come back and go, okay, mate, that wasn't such a good one. Or, oh, that one worked quite well. Mm. Uh, but we need to build more projects to be able to test things like that. Mm. Uh, so, but we have a, have a couple happening now, which we're excited about. And yeah, I think you have to be sure that the projects you're working on in the office are the best projects that you're doing. Like I always want to be doing it. The project I'm doing now, I think is a, a, a better project than the projects I did last year or the year before. And it's difficult to, like it's, we didn't really talk about it, but setting up an office is really, really difficult. Like, you know, especially if you, if you have an office that wants to have a, an ambition, uh, because you have to 
stumble upon the, the clients who want to really be ambitious too. You, you have to have the practicalities of life, of having a mortgage, having to get the kids to nursery, having to get home early, all that type of stuff as well. And uh, it's, it's, it is really difficult, but I guess the reward is that like, I, is that kind of, for me, I, I love being on site and I, I, love, I, I love seeing the spaces come alive. Mm. Um, it's just so exciting to talk to someone who is this early on in their kind of independent career. As someone who fantasizes, you know, like <laughs> most of us do, of having one's own practice in some, in some form or another. Um, so to be here with you now at the kind of, in these kind of nascent stages is exciting because um, we know there's such a long way to go. Yeah. And there's, there's so many projects, hopefully, that have yet to happen. What's exciting for me is the, the, the kind of idea that this is an ongoing conversation, just the same way that uh, a practice is in a state of ongoing evolution. Yeah. So thanks again, David. Well, thanks so much. It's been really great. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Dorothy Ashby. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to David Leach, to the Architecture Foundation for supporting the show, and to those of you who've already chipped in on Patreon. It means a lot. Thanks as always to Scandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.